you guys all go over to God's kids and then they're going to come back in. No, I'm just kidding. Well, if you would, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And as you make your way there, I'd like to start with a brief story. You see, when I was in seventh grade, the high school men's soccer team won the regional championship for the very first time. And it was so incredibly exciting. For us soccer-loving seventh graders, those 15 guys were like the coolest guys on campus. And what's more, when they came back, they partnered with a senior who really loved doing films and made this mini Matrix-like soccer movie. So all throughout the campus, they were dribbling the soccer balls, they were doing these cool tricks off lockers and all this different, th- different stuff. And obviously, our not quite as talented but equally enthusiastic um, minds thought we w- could do the same thing. And so we spent the last month of school trying to be like those guys, getting in trouble, bouncing the soccer ball through the halls anytime we weren't in class, and, and just trying to be like those guys. Because to us, they were the ideal example. They were the epitome of cool. For us, they were the perfect example. And today, we are going to look at how Jesus Christ is our perfect example. And if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, we're in this series on Philippians. And last week, Nathan talked to us a little bit about the second chapter of the book of Philippians. He showed us that we need to strive towards unity and that often, in light of the example of Jesus Christ, it takes humility. Well, today we're going to look again at that example. And we're going to see that that example of Jesus Christ should inspire us to work out our salvation towards a Christ-like obedience. That in light of the example of Jesus Christ's perfect obedience that we are to pursue a Christ-like obedience. So if you would, let's read this passage one more time together. Therefore, my beloved, in verse 12, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that... You may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, before we get into the main point, into the meat of this passage, we have to understand something. We have to understand what the motivation for what Paul is about to say is. And we find that in our very first word, therefore, because of, in light of, looking back at what has come before. You see, what Paul is about to tell us doesn't just stand on its own. This isn't just something that Paul thinks is important. But this is something that naturally flows out of the example of Jesus Christ that we just looked at last week. The example that in verse 8 it says, Jesus Christ became obedient to death, to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So in this first word, in saying therefore, Paul takes this from being something that he values to something that he says, look, look at the example of Jesus Christ's perfect obedience. And in light of this, this is what you need to do. It's not just something that he values, but it is something that we must do in light of the example of Jesus Christ. And that takes this passage from being important to being absolutely vital for the next step in our faith if we are to pursue a Christ-like obedience. So look at the rest of verse 12 with me. It says, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, if you remember, you were here the first week of this series, Pastor Ralph explained how this letter was very intimate and familial. They didn't have a lot of massive problems going on as other churches did, but they were very close with Paul. So then he follows that up saying, you have always obeyed, basically affirming them again, saying, good job, you guys are doing it. You're being productive, You're, you're obeying. But what he says next tells us something tells us that he's not quite satisfied with where they're at. He says, you've obeyed, but this is the next step. He doesn't want them to become stiff, to become sidetracked, to become stagnant in their salvation. And maybe as we're here today, that's where you're at. Maybe you're a parent and you're doing all that you can to be involved in your kid's life and you want them to pursue Christ with their entire lives. And so every night you spend time in the Bible with them, but when you go to sleep, it just feels like your own salvation is stuck, that it's not moving forward. Or maybe you're so involved in your job and you're so committed that your salvation has kind of been put on the back burner. You haven't rejected it, but it's not the most important thing, and it's, it's just back there stiff and collecting dust. Or maybe you're a student, whether at um, college, whether in high school, wherever you're at, and for you, the busyness of everything has caused you to be sidetracked. And what's going on in your life has caused you to just forget about the importance of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you've got a totally different story, but wherever you're at, What Paul has to say, what his command is, speaks to our lives today just as it did the Philippians. So what is this command? If you look in verse 12, it says, work out your own salvation. You might be thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. Work and salvation. I might have not read my Bible that much in the last week, but those two words don't go in the same sentence. Working out your own salvation sounds counter to what you know to be true. But if you look, it says work out your own salvation. Not work for your salvation, work out. Paul is all about grace. He is all about our salvation is a gift from God, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that we might have the gift of eternal life and a relationship with God. We have that, but he says work out your salvation. It's kind of like people um, who have a smartphone. A lot of us probably have smartphones, but some people who have smartphones, they get so excited because they get this smartphone, they have a smartphone, and they're just so excited. Look at this. It's slimmer, it's faster, it's longer, it's whatever. They've got this smartphone. 
They have it within their grasp. But after three weeks, all they do is text, call their grandmother every few weeks, and search the occasional thing on Google. They have not fully worked out what it means to have a smartphone. They have not used it to its full potential. So while we have our salvation, yes, it is in our grasp. Paul's not questioning that. He says, you haven't worked this out. And in looking at the example of Jesus Christ, he says, you too, in working out your salvation, need to pursue a Christ-like obedience. He says, you've got it, but you haven't worked it out. You haven't let it permeate through your whole lives. You have not been obedient in an all-encompassing Christ-like manner. But what does this mean? How does this mean we can still work? It's still a weird word to think about in the context of our salvation. Well, if you look at the rest of the phrase and the rest, and the rest of verse 13, it says that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The first thing that they needed to understand in Philippi and that we need to understand is how great a gift this is. So he says, with fear and with trembling. It's not like a, I just saw a clown and even though I'm 30 years old, they still scare me. Kind of fear and trembling. But this is like a looking back at that example of Christ and saying, this is incredible. This is absolutely stunning. I, I just, I have this godly, awesome fear because of the magnitude of my salvation. That is the kind of fear and trembling. So then look at verse 13. It says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And the first thing that we need to understand, that we need to grasp, is that working out our salvation, that pursuing a Christ-like obedience is only because of the grace of God. It says, For God who works in you. It is all from God. If we tried to do it on our own, we could look at this example of Christ, but on our own, we could do absolutely nothing. We could work as hard as we wanted, but without God working in us, it would all be useless. And God works in us in two ways, it says in verse 13. To will and to work. The will is on the inside on our hearts, on our emotions, on our mindset, pursuing a Christ-like obedience in all things, in, in the inside that people often do not see. It's kind of easy for some of us to fake actions. I think of the Iwana kids, honestly, because sometimes we'll sit them down and say, look, until you say you're sorry for what you just did, you cannot play the next game. And they'll sit, and they'll pout, and they'll get the grumpiest face you've ever seen up until the point that they realize that they're playing their favorite game. Then all of a sudden, that sitting in the corner becomes this look of joy, and they somehow, it's like magic, can say, I'm sorry, and run off. But the real trick is the emotion behind it, is the heart behind it. And that's where God begins in working in us. As we work out our salvation, as we pursue a Christ-like obedience, He begins in our will and emotion. And then naturally, it's working out in our every action. God molds us. We might not be paying attention. We might just think, 
I'm doing it today. I'm doing it this week. But God is working in that every action and has been working back in our hearts, in our will, in our emotion. We need to understand that it is only by God's grace, only by Him working in us that we are able to do this. And the last thing we need to look at in regards to verse 13 is that it says, to work for His good pleasure. Regardless of what He is doing in us, it is bringing God the glory. And it might sound selfish, like what a selfish God we serve, but no, He is perfect and He is holy. And because of that, all that is good and glorious for Him is also best for us. So while He is bringing Himself glory, He is working in our inside and out, pushing us towards a Christ-like obedience and doing all for our greatest pleasure as well. So these first two verses give us our command. Paul explains our motivation. So if we look now at the next few verses again, they're going to explain how this plays out, how we do this, how this works in the day-to-day. So look at verses 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Now we begin with these two very concrete words. We have grumbling. It's very much an interactive outward thing. You grumble to your neighbor. You grumble to your parents about what's going on. You grumble to your kids that they're not doing something right. You grumble to your boss about your fellow employee. It's an outward thing, grumbling. And then if you look, other commentators have said, this other word, uh, questioning, is what mine says. Questioning is very much inward. And so you have something that's just tearing you up inside. Maybe it's some sort of dissatisfaction with something within our body of Christ. But you start questioning, and it eats you up. Often it leads to grumbling, but we have the outward and the inward again. You might be saying, well, okay, hold up. Those aren't like directly sins. Like, you don't understand my life. You don't understand that I have this relative who just absolutely drives me crazy and I need to tell somebody about it. I need to grumble about it. You might be saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I am so exhausted. I am so tired of working so hard at work and having my employee just put me down. So I need to tell, I need to tell my family when I get home. I need to grumble. Okay. But look at what the next phrase says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. It's like Paul sees this. It's like Paul recognizes our mental process and, and the Philippians there too and says, hold up. Maybe this stuff isn't directly keeping you away from God, but is it causing you to be sidetracked, stagnant, stiff? Is it keeping you from living a blameless and pure life? one of Christ-like obedience. And for the Philippians, this would have been all the more powerful because these two words are the exact words that were used of the Israelites as they were wandering around the desert. The same words that right after Moses had brought them out and God had parted the Red Sea that they were using. And so he says, look, these aren't taking away from God, but you know what happened to the Israelites? They wandered around in circles. 
So for us, maybe it's not taking us away from God, but it's not causing us to move forward. Not causing us to be blameless and pure in a Christ-like obedience. But look at verse 15, because this continues it on. It says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. The, the hope here, as we turn from within our body, turn to the people that see us best, is as we turn outwards to the entire world, that we are without blemish. That when people look at you and I, they look at the children of God, that they see us without blemish. And we can only do that if we are blameless and pure. And for the Philippians' day, it was in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. It's not hard to draw a connection to our own lives. Look at the world we live in. It's like Paul knows the exact context that we were going to be in as well. Think of the current uh, mayoral election in New York City. There's a candidate running who's been in the news every single day for a, a widening, adulterous scandal. And yet he's still running. We have a world which is twisted and broken. And what does Paul say? He says, in the midst of this, shine as lights. Remain blameless and pure without blemish so that you shine as lights. And if we're doing that, it should look like night and day. This darkness of our generation and us shining as lights. It reminds me of this commercial that's actually on TV like right now. And there's these two boys and the first one begins to close his eyes and begins to count. And so it's fairly obvious that they're playing hide and seek. And the other boy begins to run off and hides behind a tree. And as he hides behind the tree, we notice that his shirt is glowing. His shirt is glowing and there's light radiating out from all sides of him. And as the first boy finishes counting, he turns around and he sees a tree with light coming from either side. And obviously he immediately runs to the boy and, and exclaims, I found you. And the commercial cuts to um, the, the boy who is hiding his laundry room and he's with his mom and he says, Mom can't you make my clothes a little less bright? It's ruining all his fun. But this is how we should be. We should be shining as lights. And look further at the last, the last part of this in the beginning of verse 16. It says, holding fast to the word of life. If we are doing all these things, if we are putting aside grumbling and questioning, if we are attempting to remain blameless and pure, pursuing a Christ-like obedience so that we shine as lights, then simultaneously we are holding fast to the word of life. Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it's here that we see that thread of the importance of the gospel, what matters most. This isn't just an inward thing. This isn't just for the believers of Philippi. This isn't just for you and I. But if we grasp this, this is another step in the advancement of the gospel. This is another step in proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. Because if we are shining as lights, 
and we are holding fast, what people are going to see is Jesus Christ. If people turn around and see a tree, if they see all that's going on, we should be shining forth in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Regardless of what is around us, we should be shining. And in shining, we are proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. And so Paul takes this, not just a Christ-like obedience for your sake and for for our sake, that we might be blameless and pure, but it's essential because it is the next step in the advancement of the gospel. We must be shining as lights. Without that, without attempting to remain blameless and pure, without putting aside things that are distracting us, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not advanced near as much through our lives. God has enabled us to do this. He has given us the strength. He is working on your inside and your out so that we can do this. But how does this play out in the long run? This is very day-to-day. This is very here and now, um, shining as lights now. But how does this play on an eternal scale? If you would, look at our last two verses. It says, So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. It's like, what? Did Paul all of a sudden get so blindsided by his own ego here? Did he suddenly realize how great of the things that he was saying to, to the believers at Philippi? And he was like, so that I may be proud. No. This is another example of that familial pouring out that we saw before. It's here that we see how closely he relates his relationship with Jesus Christ to their relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, he is so close with them that their relationship with Christ affects his. He sees it as a direct result. And so it says that I might not labor in vain or run in vain. He's not worried about their salvation. He's not worried that in the last day that he will have run in vain, that he will have labored in vain. But he's saying, he's saying do all this because I'm excited for that day. I'm excited for the day that we stand before Jesus Christ in the day of Christ, it says, when we both stand there. And my relationship with Jesus Christ is is just a part of your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I am excited for the day that I labor in vain, that I will not have labored in vain or run in vain. But what about that word proud? Well, we have to understand that Paul finds his identity solely in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This laboring, this running for Paul is for Jesus Christ. He takes none of the glory for himself. He does not find any pity in himself in his laboring and running. He only is looking forward to the day of Christ because he knows that he will not have run in vain, that he will not have labored in vain. Because of these believers. Because these believers are working out their salvation. I like to think of it this way. 
If Pastor Ralph were standing up here, um, I can see him delivering somewhat of the same type of message as Paul is. And he's so excited that he's telling us all, this, all these things, but, and then all of a sudden he realizes that in the day of Christ that you and I will all be standing with him before Jesus Christ. And he's so excited because he knows that in that day he will not have labored in vain or run in vain. And so in the middle of Pastor Ralph's message, he all of a sudden says, do it so that I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, none of us would all of a sudden be like, oh, okay, pause there, Pastor Ralph. You're getting a little proud on us. No, because we know the only reason that Pastor Ralph is saying it is because he is so excited that Jesus Christ is using him. And so he's excited to run. He's excited to labor. And this is the mindset. A joy despite laboring, a joy despite running, that we need to have. The mind that, mindset that says, regardless of the situation, regardless of what we are going through, that we find the ability to rejoice and be glad. Because our identity is solely in Jesus Christ. And in nothing else. So look at the last two verses of our passage one more time. It says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. And as you know, Paul is in jail at this point. It's fair to say that his job of advancing the gospel has not gotten him to live this, this cushy life. He's not sitting back in some gorgeous mansion. But instead, he's in jail. He's not in an ideal circumstance. And yet, despite this, he can say, I, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, I rejoice and am glad. He is being poured out. He says, I've already gone through this. I'm going through it currently. I'm sitting in jail. I am being poured out as a drink offering. He says, but I am glad. Why is Paul glad? Because in the midst of all this, he sees every part of this as, as proof of his identity in Jesus Christ. And that is the only thing that matters to Paul. He doesn't, it doesn't matter that he's in jail. It doesn't matter that he's suffered. But he sees his identity in Jesus Christ. So he can say, in that day, I'm going to be glad that I did not labor in vain. That I did not run in vain. Because the only thing that Paul sees is his identity in Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters. And how does this connect to the Philippians? He says, I am being poured out on top of their sacrificial offering. And he says, rejoice with me. Because as Paul sees himself and he sees his suffering as proof that he is in Jesus Christ, he says, you too are going through the same thing. You too are suffering. You too are, are being poured out. So rejoice. This should be excitement for you because it proves that you are living and you are pursuing a Christ-like obedience. So don't get sidetracked by all these things. Don't get sidetracked by the fact that you're suffering, but rejoice in it. 
Because you and I, the Philippians and Paul, and us as believers, we are suffering. And it proves that we find our identity in Jesus Christ. Because as we said, we live in a twisted and in a crooked generation. One that if people turn around, that they should see us shining as lights. But because we live in such darkness, because we live in brokenness, often that's going to result in suffering. And that's hard. It's not easy. You know, maybe you face this at work. You've committed yourself to spend five minutes in prayer before you start every day, and you've heard the ridicule that you get as a result. Or maybe you've told friends before that, I'm sorry, I, I can't do dinner with you. I can't hang out because I promised that I would be at this church thing. Or I would be worshiping with my fellow believers. And as a result, you just get shunned. Or maybe as you go through your life, as you commit yourself more and more to the gospel, to pursuing a Christ-like obedience, your family's just not getting it. And they're very open about that. They, they tell you, this is absolutely foolish. But we can endure all that. We can per- continue to pursue Jesus Christ because we find our identity in Him. God has given us the ability to pursue Him. We are to be blameless and pure, shining as lights, pursuing Jesus Christ, holding fast to Him so that other people see us, And that should be our only joy. So that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of ridicule, rejection, that we can say, I rejoice in this. Why? Because the only thing that brings me joy is Jesus Christ. All this other stuff doesn't matter. It hurts, yes. But I continue on because Jesus Christ is all that matters. I am being poured out as a drink offering upon your sacrificial offering. You and I, we are being poured out together. But we rejoice. And Paul says, rejoice with me. Because it's proof that our identity is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. We have this awesome example of Jesus Christ. Nathan explained last week, he didn't get fully into it, but Jesus Christ, it says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is the whole motivation for our living and working out our salvation. We see this amazing, incredible example And the first thing that we need to recognize is that it is only by God, only by His grace that we are able to do this. He is working on our inside and out. And if we do this, we have to be committed to working out our salvation in all ways. We have to put aside that which is distracting us. Put aside grumbling or questioning or anything else that is causing you to be sidetracked, to become stagnant, stiff in your salvation. Things that are taking away from your ability to become closer to Jesus Christ. So that as we see this twisted, crooked generation, 
as we see the lost people around us, that we can say, I am pursuing Jesus Christ. I am trying with my whole self, enabled by God, to become blameless and pure, so that when people turn around, that they see that I am holding fast to Jesus Christ. That then when they turn around, whether they like it or not, that they see Jesus Christ in our lives. Because we are holding fast. And they see Jesus Christ and Him alone because that is all that we find our identity in. That in the midst of this world, in the midst of ridicule, in the midst of suffering, that Jesus Christ is all that matters to us. So as we go, as we face those daily things, can we say that? Can we pursue Jesus Christ? Do you see the example of Jesus Christ today and you say, I am not just going to be satisfied with the salvation that is just there. I'm going to take full grasp of my salvation. I'm going to commit myself day in and day out to pursuing Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, what we see is that we can look back, as Paul did, and say, I have not labored in vain. I have not run in vain. As we go out, as we interact this world, are we going to be ready in the day of Christ to be saying, are we going to be able to stand up here, stand before Jesus Christ, and be excited and be proud because we did not run in vain? and because we did not labor in vain. Are we pursuing a Christ-like obedience? Let's pray. God, I thank you for the way in which you work in every person's life. That 